0: you are not allowed to give money to a designated foreign terrorist organization. But if Al-Qaeda kidnaps your nephew and threatens to kill him and you pay that ransom, that is not going to be prosecuted. And so there is this question of, do we think of these payments as more like human ransoms, or do we think of them as more like Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violations, which are to say payments to overseas actors that we make in order to facilitate and maintain a good business climate
2: i'm scott r anderson and this is the lawfare podcast for august 16th 2021 the united states government has been wrestling with what to do about a particular type of cyber threat ransomware that holds a victim's data and computer systems hostage until they pay usually in the form of cryptocurrency to an anonymous recipient Recent ransomware attacks have threatened everything from hospitals to the meat industry, with payment being the main way that most companies are choosing to get back online. But what does giving in to such demands mean for broader U.S. efforts to prevent and deter ransomware attacks? For this past week's Lawfare Live, I sat down with Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes and Lawfare Fellow in Cybersecurity Law Alvaro Marignon, who recently authored a piece for Lawfare entitled Ransomware Payments and the Law. They argue that stemming the flow of payments is essential to deterring ransomware attacks, and argue that the United States should adopt a policy banning such payments in all but the most serious cases. Along with a live audience of Lawfare supporters, we discussed the threat that ransomware poses to the U.S. economy, how payments should be dealt with, and what Congress and the Biden administration seem to be doing about it. This podcast episode is a lightly edited recording of that event. It's the Lawfare Podcast for August 16th. How can Congress take on the ransomware problem? Ben and Alvaro, let me take a moment to you first to kind of set up your piece, because you introduce your piece with what I think is a really compelling and interesting metaphor of sorts, which is you describe ransomware payments as a tax. Tell us what you mean by that. What makes ransomware payments of such broad concern and magnitude, or, or potential magnitude at least, to be at that scale, or it's something that affects a broad swath of the public like a tax and should be conceived, as I take it to you to be framing, as a public cost borne by a broader swath and therefore of interest to the government.
0: Yeah, so I think the uh, essential concept of a tax, right, is an involuntary payment that a company or an individual is forced to pay by the nature of the business that he's in by some external, presumably government authority. And here, you have a group of criminal gangs uh, who are essentially levying an a valueless cost, valueless in the sense that they don't get anything in return for it, on American business and non-American business for that matter. Uh, It is not by the government uh, and it is in exchange for really bad things not happening to you. It's uh, and so in the same way that we talk about a protection racket being, you know, a tax on, on legitimate business by organized crime, I think it makes a lot of sense to think of this as, you know, a tax on legitimate business by an illegitimate business with the wrinkle that the illegitimate business is, uh, almost entirely overseas.
2: So this comparison of ransomware to a protection scheme, I think, is one we hear a couple other places and implies a a certain type of relationship and a certain type of exchange that ransomware perpetrators are kind of offering the people affected by ransomware. Alvaro, just in case we have anybody watching or listening who may not be as intimately familiar with how ransomware operates, can you give us a quick overview as to what it is, how it tends to affect people, and maybe one or two prominent examples recently about that highlight the broader impact it's been having and why it's been such an issue of public concern?
3: Yeah. To begin, it's a nuanced issue due to the fact that a lot of information we don't know about the payments. Uh, Recent FBI hearings at the Senate talked about how 25 to 35 percent of all ransomware payments aren't disclosed to authorities. So even just knowing the grand scope and scale of this is still unknown to the public but generally what in what generally occurs is a company will receive some type of notification and then seek a demand from the uh non-state actor affiliate and they will request a certain amount of money usually in cryptocurrency bitcoin being the predominantly used form of currency and there they'll ask either to decrypt the, the pieces of information they have and kind of extort money out of them and from there uh, a lot of the big main incidents we've seen in recent recent couple of weeks have been targeting the other supply chains or very vulnerable organizations that either have some type of legacy system or inadequate cybersecurity measures. And from there, the company will hopefully talk with law enforcement and get some type of tracking of the payments and then usually do end up uh, forcing to pay. While there's a split currently now between whether if that's a good business practice or not, because some situations payment is not necessary. But others, we've seen hospitals who are kind of tied to the downtime related to these incidents and can't afford the luxury of not paying. So there they really are pressured into paying. And we've seen demands up to 70 million recently with uh, IT software providers and as low as 4 million regarding MEPAC and industry.
2: So... You guys kind of come up with what in some circles, I suspect, will be a little bit of a controversial solution, which is you should ban, uh, meaning criminalize or at least penalize people who are caught in this from actually complying with the ransom demand and therefore liberating their information, access to the computer systems, whatever is being held hostage. Why is it that you all think a prohibition, a ban, is the right approach for Congress and for the broader federal government of the United States to take in this particular circumstance? And what is this set of conditions in which it should apply? Are you talking about an absolute ban or are there certain circumstances where you think there needs to be some flexibility around the margins? And then if there is that case, how do you prevent that exception from kind of swallowing the whole?
0: Yeah. So uh, first of all, the issue is not an easy one and no solution is going to be, uh, you're looking for the, the least bad solution. Most ransomware victim companies or entities are not innocent victims. They are negligent victims. That's not to say that there are no purely innocent victims, but uh, most of the time ransomware attacks work because companies have not been especially forward-leaning in keeping systems up to date. They've left systems vulnerable. And so the question becomes, whenever one of these companies pays a a ransom, they are effectively uh, encouraging future attacks. They're feeding a marketplace. And unlike human ransoms, where the cost is, you know, human life, uh, in most of these situations, the cost is data. Uh, which may be catastrophic for the affected entity, but is not catastrophic for the society. And so the question is whether we should encourage, discourage, or prohibit people from feeding the market for future ransomware attacks by participating in these markets and by, by, by making these payments. Uh, Our view is that generally speaking, uh, right now, the current U.S. government position is to discourage but not prohibit. The government takes the view that they strongly discourage companies from paying ransom uh, for exactly the reason that I just articulated. However, they don't actually prohibit it. And this is quite different from other corrupt payments where you're generally prohibited from making corrupt payments. However, uh, there are situations, as with Alvaro mentions, an attack on a hospital where the loss of data may actually, you know, shut down a respirator or, you know, cause life uh, loss or, or you know, disastrous consequences for people. And in those situations, uh, it's probably better to make the payment than not. And so the question is, who gets to decide that? And our basic view is that uh, companies should not be deciding that on their own. They should be generally prohibited from making these payments, with the exception of circumstances in which they apply for and receive permission from federal authorities to do so, and that federal authorities should review those uh, applications with a an eye toward larger public policy considerations, like is there a you know imminent loss of human life at issue? Is there going to be catastrophic damage to the economy generally rather than simply to a company that you know failed to do cybersecurity due diligence? There's no perfect solution to this, but our general view is dry up the market. And the best way to do that is to make it harder, much harder, and make it presumptively illegal for companies to line the pockets of of these criminal gangs.
2: So give us a sense about what the legal landscape looks like already, because you all spend a fair amount of time articulating, first, the comparative prohibitions that exist in law regarding other sorts of problematic payments that pose public policy problems. But then you also know a couple of authorities that already get real close to this question, but none necessarily encompasses the whole ransomware, the whole universe of ransomware circumstances. Um, Alvaro, I know you did a lot of this research. Why don't I turn it to you first and we can bump it over to Ben to supplement a little bit.
3: Yeah. uh, So two of the biggest developments occurred last October when the Department of Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control OFEC Issued, to advise, uh, issued an advisory relating to the involvement of cryptocurrencies, ransomware and the sanctions regime. And there, the advisory, while it's non-binding, described the, the current approach they would adopt. And the current approach is that anyone who materially assists, sponsors, provides any financial material technological support to the actors on the S&D list, which is the specifically designated nationals and blocked person, could be held strictly liable uh, for civil penalties. And then again, another advisory happened in the same month, uh, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network issued another advisory. Again, ad- echoing the similar sentiments and approach that will hold um, payment facility, money facilitators and other people involved in ransomware transactions liable if they are related to the sanctions list. So these are two broad uh, powerful agency statements. And from there, a lot of the people in the legal circle have talked about how this currently affects their current compliance procedures and for the most part it's not binding but it sparked a lot of debates and discussions and subsequently there's been Senate bills introduced talking about how we can ban ransomware pushing it towards there.
0: I think it's actually a really we go through in the piece what the uh, broader legal landscape looks like with respect to thematically similar payments that are already banned in US law And as Alvaro points out, some mm-hmm. ransomware payments, are clearly illegal under this guidance that that OFAC has issued but there are a number of other laws that criminalize ransomware payments or things like it under some circumstances so let me just tick through a few of those first of all there's a the material support law right which says you're not allowed to give money or anything else of value to a designated foreign terrorist organization. So uh, most ransomware gangs are not designated foreign terrorist organizations, but they are organizations that are kind of criminal in character. And we have laws that, for example, ban you know giving of things of value to proscribed entities overseas. So that's the, the first thing. The second thing is the sanctions list as as you know, you're generally not allowed to give money to or conduct business with uh, entities that are prescribed under under Treasury sanctions. Now, this is a interesting thing because it means, you know, President Biden and the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen could ban ransomware payments simply by slapping sanctions on the entities that are engaged but you have to know who they are in order to do it, right? Then there's a series of laws that prohibit corrupt payments to foreign officials. Uh, Most importantly, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And these basically say, you know, you can't pay bribes to foreign officials in order to get business done overseas. Well, that's kind of similar to this, right? This is a foreign non-official demanding a corrupt payment in order to not destroy your data. Uh, If the person were a government official and say, hey, if you want to do business in this country, you know, slip me 20K, that would be illegal under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Uh, And then finally, of course, uh, there are a number of other relevant provisions, but there's also a series of, of, of laws that prohibit demanding or paying bribes In general, particularly in the electronic context, extortion. So the, the demand for an extortionate payment is illegal and various other types of corrupt, uh, transactions, even if they don't involve officials. And so I think it's fair to say paying ransom where demands is surrounded in law by illegality. Uh, and many ransomware payments themselves are illegal under current law, but there's no law that generally prohibits the payment of a, of ransomware without something else going on. And that makes it a very, a very complicated area, uh, that I think, you know, you kind of scratch your head when you look at these issues and you say, well, why exactly isn't there such a law? Uh, one other note on this, uh, the U.S. government has been traditionally very careful about not prosecuting people for paying ransoms for, in case, say, kidnapping cases, even when the ransoms are, you know, obviously illegal. So, for example, you are not allowed to give money to a designated foreign terrorist organization, But if Al-Qaeda kidnaps your nephew and threatens to kill him and you pay that ransom, that is not going to be prosecuted. And so there is this question of, do we think of these payments as more like human ransoms or do we think of them as more like Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violations, which are to say payments to overseas actors that we make in order to facilitate and maintain a good business climate.
2: So we've gotten a few questions in the chat window on this one issue, which I think you actually, you all actually addressed in your piece, I think is a really interesting hook here uh, that I actually was not aware of before this. Are these payments tax deductible? And you note in your piece that in fact they are, and they are being deducted. Alvaro, tell us a little bit about that and how that fits into this public policy picture mm-hmm. for the government.
3: Yeah, it's an interesting area because we're talking about attacks and incentivizing certain behaviors, but it currently appears that the current landscape is doing that, but to the negative. Uh, So companies are able to write these off as necessary and ordinary payments as part of their normal business practice. So whatever ransom they do can be written off. And as the treasurer has been talking, this is subsidizing the ransomware payment process and kind of manipulating the, the current system. So, a good Brookings post related to this topic spoke about how they've discovered that companies are continuously, I guess, taking advantage of this loophole. And again, it's not really going back to the root problem, uh, the lack of cybersecurity. This is another way to put a temporary bandaid and continuing with, the, I guess, inattentiveness or the lack of preparedness with uh, the current digital age.
2: No, I think that's fascinating. So you all you all come at this with a reform perspective. You pitch certain legal changes that you think would help the federal government better address this problem. Lay those out for us. What are is the prescriptive pitch in your guys' piece uh, or the range of potential solutions the government might pursue, whether Congress or the executive branch?
0: So let's take it from easiest to most difficult. The easiest proposition is that you shouldn't be able to make a ransomware payment in secret. Uh, we don't really go into this in the piece, but I actually don't also, I also don't think you should be able to keep secret ransomware demands. So if you receive an entity, a demand for a ransomware payment with the idea that your, you know, your computers have been compromised, I, I actually don't think uh, you should be able to do that in secret. Um, I think you should have to disclose that to the government. The government has an independent, you know, quite apart from your interests or your shareholders' interests, the government has an independent interest in understanding the scope of the problem and also responding to the problem and correlating different actions, you know, uh, figuring out, is this the same guy that just attacked Alvaro, who's now attacking Wittes, right? Um, You can't figure that out yourself, but the FBI often can and so having a reporting dimension to certainly payments but i would say ransomware attacks itself is i think that's the low hanging fruit the second question and the more difficult question is should the payment be be legal at all and as i say we argue that they should generally not be legal but that the ban can't be a simple flat ban because there actually are situations that resemble a little bit too closely the, you know, Al Qaeda holding Daniel Pearl, right? Or a, a, a situation where human life is at stake. Uh, there's also situations where there are, you can imagine situations that there are entities that are too big to fail. So, for example, with respect to, you know, the uh, meatpacking attack uh, that affected the cost of meat nationwide and it affected the availability of meat nationwide. That's a big deal, right? And in the, under those circumstances, a responsible government might, and I say might because I would err, always err on the side of not making a payment, but might decide, hey, there's a national interest in, in you know, not having the East Coast, not have oil gasoline or not having the country have a meat shortage.
2: As a vegetarian, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I'll well, take so I'll take I, your point. There, there are different views for different folks, certainly.
0: Yes, I, I, I would say um, uh, I am all for people eating less meat. I think Russian hackers should have very little input into that debate within the United States. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, so I guess the question is, what are the circumstances in which you want to prohibit the payment, what's the default? And I think the default, and Alvarado and I argue, should be that the default is that without permission, the payment is prohibited. And then the question becomes, what are the circumstances in which you want to permit the payment to go forward?
3: And another thing we're looking at is the importance, is that nothing here is determinative, not one single factor. If you look at the sanctions regime, Uh, There's a lot of mitigating factors, like the voluntariness of the disclosure, the timeliness. So even if you do get attacked, and again, these are victims, these are victim organizations, we don't want to double penalize them. So if this happens, at the bare minimum, they should contact law enforcement and at least disclose this, and that can help them mitigate and prevent any types of uh, enforcement. And again, Obama, when they were talking about payment of terror, ransom to terrorists, the US has never prosecuted anyone making a terrorist ransom or paying a terrorist ransom. And I doubt that would change. We don't want to penalize victims again. We just want to change the current ecosystem.
2: So it sounds like, and, and your piece gets at this, you all are envisioning a sanctions like licensing system plus prosecutorial discretion, some combination of those two as really the solution. Have you given much thought to how that, where that fits within the uh, federal government in its current structure in terms of agency process? Of course, we have a variety of different types of licensing regimes. Commerce Department runs some, State Department runs some. And cyber is always one of these perennially challenging issues, in part because it doesn't fit very cleanly in a particular bucket. So- where do you see this issue fitting? Um, especially because these licensing regimes, uh, I will say as somebody who who worked closely with one of them at the State Department during my career there, it's a lot of work. Uh, it is a, a technical process. There's litigation uh, interest at various points uh, often. You also, frankly, have like... Very well-paid attorneys often aggressively pushing you to pursue licenses if it's an urgent situation for well-heeled clients. So it is an administrative challenge that's a little outside the scope of your piece. So I, you know, I, I think it's reasonable to say that's for piece number two. But I was just curious if you've given any thought about that where this should fit in the federal government.
0: Yeah. So we don't treat it in the piece, um, which is a kind of higher-level overview of the problem and a policy argument that's some licensing regime. Is appropriate. I do think as a functional matter, there are some sort of interesting nuances of this particular licensing regime, which is, for one thing, it's generally going to happen on an urgent basis. So when ransomware gangs attack an entity, whether a governmental entity or a hospital entity or a corporate entity, there's generally a deadline and it's, and it's, you know, days, not weeks, right? You have forty-eight hours to make x payment, and so these are going to come up almost uniformly in an emergency basis. Secondly, uh, to make it more difficult, uh, the interests of the United States government are diverse, and so if you take the the meat or oil example, the Department of Agriculture, which regulates the meat production world. Uh, is going to have, or the Department of Energy is going to have very different answer to this question than the FBI is, which is really going to, or the NSC, which is really going to want to dry up, to coin a term, drain the swamp, right? And so the government's interest, you're going to have to have an interagency process that operates very quickly to resolve divergent government interests, And that is something that the government is not always really great at. And as a consequence of that, a huge amount of power is going to be given to the part of the government that has the paramount interest. That is, if you say this is a license from the FBI or the Justice Department, they're going to have the pen and you're going to get different answers than if you say, Let's give it, make it a commerce department license, and so I guess I think it has to be interagency, it has to be cybersecurity entity led, and for this reason, I think the right answer is actually to put it in the hands of uh, the cybersecurity agency at DHS, but it has to have a strong law enforcement component, it ha- and it has to have input on a very fast basis from the regulatory place in the federal government that deals with the specific area that the affected entity deals with. So it's a, it's a complicated issue, uh, particularly because of speed.
2: One last question for you before I turn to audience questions, Uh, and it's kind of the latent question lying behind any reform proposal, which is who has to do it? The subject of our discussion today is how can Congress take on the ransomware problem, which kind of assumes that this is a legislative problem. There's a pitch for Congress to address. But I'm not 100% sure that's uh, necessarily required. Uh, You think about the authorities provided by, for example, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, which allow the president to regulate all sorts of financial transactions as long as there's a nexus to a threat to the US economy or national security that is uh, some sort of foreign nexus. And then on top of that, since the Patriot Act now allows for the freezing of assets and transactions, even during the pendency of an investigation, meaning even where there's some ambiguity, but that there's reason to believe a certain transaction might be overseas, that could at least, so long as the ransomware problem has an international nexus, could credibly provide an authorization for a regime a lot like this, I think, although it probably would be housed in Treasury, not not DHS. Have you all thought about what is the implementing mechanism you're envisioning, and are some preferable to others? Is there reason to be hesitant to embrace an IEPA-oriented or other regulatory-oriented focus and instead go to Congress? Or is this something the Biden administration could and should consider doing on its own?
3: I think the biggest concern for me, why I would not want the executive branch to adopt this or continue with this, is it's very reactive. Uh, Congress will have the ability to be proactive thinking about what are all the considerations, the size, scale, and scope of industries, and what the factors we need at play here. And doing so can be forward looking and also help businesses better prepare and also contribute into the development of this licensing system regime. And I think that would be better suited to have something that's comprehensive and issue executive orders and do also it's it's just very, very reactive and again timing issues and it's not very fair to the victim organizations to be looking out for these types of updates and kind of in, in light of getting attacked as well.
0: Yeah, so I I would just add to that that I am generally speaking I I don't look AIPA is sweeping and could you craft a regime under AIPA? Yeah, you probably could. I'm generally not a person who will make an argument for more use of executive emergency powers, and so when when I look at a problem like this that is quite novel. It seems to me the place to start is with the legislature. If the legislature is incapable of acting and incapable of crafting uh, an appropriate regime, yes, I agree with you. You can look back at existing law and say there is some space for a regulatory uh, process to, you know, or administrative process to produce something like that outcome. But I don't, I don't think that's the optimal way to proceed. Uh, In a situation that's genuinely novel, particularly not one in which, you know, we're not dealing with an exigent situation that we don't have time to craft a reasonable regime in response to.
1: you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com.
0: Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022. And they sent me their first privacy report, I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me. And it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress as I do every time that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and make sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft doxing and phishing scams. Delete.me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web, data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindelete.me.com/lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 code LAWFARE20.
2: All right, well, we are gonna go to our questions. Go ahead and ask your first question. And I'll flag, uh, I, this is something that's a little outside the scope of the piece, but actually something I've done a little writing on, so I may kick in a little bit of answer. But I'll turn it to Ben and Alvaro first.
4: Uh, so my question is, uh, what is the role of insurers and reinsurers in responding to this issue? I'm wondering if there could be something to regulate there, uh, maybe something analogous to what was intended to happen with the federal flood insurance program. Uh, where they would initially insure against the risk, but then raise rates until presumably people took the necessary steps to protect themselves.
3: Just one quick thing. Again, this is outside my wheelhouse and scope. Uh, but I was interesting, uh, reading an interesting New Yorker piece on how they deal with ransomware hackers and actually like, the day to day. And there they spoke about how like, three fourths of Fortune 500 companies eventually invested in kidnapped ransom insurance, and but later countries would outlaw this. So while it's a necessary cost, I guess, to get insurance at this point, companies are flexible to getting and adopting it. Right.
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting question uh, about cyber insurance in the cyber, insurance in the kind of cyber attack realm. While there, I think there are specialized insurance products and so that there certainly could be to the extent there aren't, although I think some are already developed that are beginning to cover incidents like this, um, the unpredictability, the scale of expense, um, I think poses really real challenges there. One thing I wrote a piece on which I'll add into the comments in a bit a couple of years ago is the fact that you see in relation to a number of major cyber attacks, insurance companies attempting to use pre-existing and very common exceptions in insurance contracts to get out of coverage. Uh, the most prominent one in regards to anything with a state nexus is uh, an active war exception, an exception that's been in most insurance policies uh, or certainly general insurance policies for really most last century um, that excuses coverage in cases where something is an active war. And the case law around... What constitutes an act of war is very tricky and ambiguous in the cyber context. So Aaron Klein, my co-author, and I made the case that this is something Congress does need to look at as well. In particular, we noted that because of the large scale, of certain cyber incidents, ransomware is a little different, although certainly you could see large scale ransomware uh, incidents as well. But in case we see large scale incidents, there might be an argument to try and stabilize the insurance industry by providing a, a federal safety net, something like the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act uh, that the Congress adopted in the aftermath of 9 11 attacks, when there are very similar concerns around terrorism coverage. It's a little bit of a side issue with ransomware, which I think is a little more uh, readily addressed by certain more conventional insurance products and models. But, you know, ransomware is part of a bigger ecosystem of cyber challenges, I think, really do pose major insurance industry problems.
0: But again, it's important to ask the question what you're insuring. So if you're insuring the payment of the ransomware payment, I wouldn't want an insurance company to do that. That's just a question of who pays Whereas I think Alvaro and my concern is whether the payment happens at all. If you're insuring damages because you are not allowed to make the payment and therefore your systems are going to be compromised, that's a very different proposition.
2: Another question in there about the partisan dynamics around this issue and the political dynamics. Go ahead and frame that up for Alvaro and Ben, and uh, that might be able to Frame into a bigger conversation about where this actually fits in the actual priorities of Congress and the administration.
3: Thanks, God, and uh, hello, guys. It's great to be here. So, uh, where do you think that this fit, fits in to uh, to the legislative priorities of of Congress? Because most of the issues these days, it's it's hard to find bipartisan common ground, like with the inf- infrastructure package. In a way. So do you think that there's Republican votes to be had in a legislative solution to this issue?
0: I don't think this is honestly a partisan issue. I think the fundamental issue here is going to be a division in the business community. And there is a big part of the business community that will not want the option of paying the ransoms taken away. And the simple reason for that is that Businesses have been able, and not just businesses, but also nonprofit organizations, government organizations have been able to offload a lot of risk. And if you, if you allow them to pay these ransoms, uh, then what they're essentially doing is sharing the risk of their own bad cybersecurity with the larger community. We will not develop good cybersecurity practices. We'll save a lot of money by doing that. And when we get attacked, we'll pay $10 million. And that's $10 million that we should have spent a lot more than that on cybersecurity over the last several years. And so what we're essentially doing is we're risk shifting to the larger community. And, you know, that's an advantageous posture for a lot of corporations to be able to take. And I think there'll be a lot of company, a lot of members of Congress of frankly, both parties who have constituent companies that benefit a lot from, from that, that uh, will be protective of it. I think that more than any partisan division is is likely to inhibit congressional action. As a general matter in this space, Congress will not act without the administration taking the lead. The administration so far has not embraced the idea of a ban. Uh, though, as Alvaro noted earlier, it has moved subtly in various OFAC kind of ways to make clear that you you are taking some legal risk, depending on who you are and what the circumstances when you make these payments. And I think if the problem continues to worsen, you could imagine the administration taking a more uh, aggressive position. How Congress would react to that, I really don't know.
3: Also, I would just add, again, the main split currently is just among the experts and authors. So one uh, group we cited was the ransomware task force. E- even there, the uh, the experts and authors who produce over 50 recommendations were not able to reach a consensus on a ransomware payment ban. So it's, it's a big split.
4: So my question now is more one of practicality. Uh, earlier, I heard you mention something like, I think it was 35% uh, or maybe only 35% of ransomware attacks go, get reported. This seems like an impossible thing to know uh, because if they're not being reported, they're not being reported. So just very like granular, like how do, how do you go about uh, measuring those statistics? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I was citing an FBI director's statement during the Senate
3: hearing, but I think that's a big issue with cyber in general, the lack of statistics. Uh, regarding like, incident responses and just also publicly available information. And one interesting area is that the FBI currently uh, set up a ransomware and digital extortion task force that will look into this issue, getting more uh, statistics on countering ransomware, and similar cybercrime schemes which should, to actually get a better number. Because uh, I, I couldn't dive into the 25 to 35% reported, but I can set it here.
0: Yeah, the the answer is how do you know is you don't. And if you look at our piece, we, we cite that statistic by the FBI. We also cite Matt Tate saying or the, the cybersecurity researcher and expert who says the percentage that's reported is tiny. Uh, and there's many, many times the number that aren't reported that, that, uh, the number that are reported that aren't. So I, I think the best way to understand it is that there is some coefficient, A, which multiplies the number of reported cases and nobody knows what the coefficient is. But it's it's big. You know, maybe it's two or three, like the FBI director uh, says, or maybe it's 10 or 20. But for every ransomware case that you see, there's some number of cases that you don't see.
4: Uh, So my last question is about the withdrawal side of the ransomware uh, economy. My understanding is that a lot of cryptocurrencies, although certainly not all are designed more to be pseudonymous rather than totally anonymous. Uh, And so it's feasible, though certainly not easy uh, to keep track of um, the wallets where ransomware payments are being stored. Uh, And then maybe you could regulate or put pressure on the exchanges Or countries that fail to regulate the exchanges in this way. Uh, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on just that side of the problem.
0: Uh, So I've spent a little bit of time on this, and I do think uh, the regulation of digital currency is a promising avenue for dealing with ransomware. Uh, We've had a number of discussions of this on the site. It's an issue we bracketed for purposes of this piece. It's not uh, something we we treat in the piece. But it is fair to say, you know, digital currency, most things you can't, you know, notwithstanding the common mythology, you can't actually go easily buy, you know, a, a shiny new car with with Bitcoin. And so if you prevent people from taking the money out and converting it back into other real fiat currencies, particularly dollars, Uh, it makes a big difference as to the utility of having a large number of Bitcoin if you actually can't do anything with them. It's a different aspect of the problem, but it's one that shows a lot of promise. Uh, there's some, uh, legislation on it in the, in the uh, infrastructure bill. It's an, it's an area that has promise. It's just not the issue that we dealt with in this piece.
3: So I think a couple of days ago there was a big uh, hack, I think it was the Apollo, Apollo network, uh, the cryptocurrency like related exchange. I think it was 600 million was taken. And part of that is that I think up to 7 million was returned because the actual criminals weren't able to launder the funds. And that's partially due to like KYC laws that are in place and that states are pushing. So even if you do take the money, it's still hard to get it out in actual to fiat and US dollars. So that's just another thing we have to look out for.
2: Uh, we have another question here. Jess, is there a carrot based policy move that you could imagine dealing with the ransomware problem? And this actually inter- integrates well with a question that I wanted to ask you guys, which is how does this solution you're proposing, or how could it, intersect with some of the more prophylactic approaches or carrot based, which I think Susan's getting at, where you're providing incentives for people to exercise better cyber hygiene, better cybersecurity acting preventively to prevent exposure to, to at least the scale of ransomware concerns. Obviously, that's a set of issues you all, I think, kind of bracketed off. Uh, you don't really address them pro or con in your piece. But I'm wondering if you give any thoughts to ways that this might incentivize or de-incentivize that behavior or could be structured in a way to encourage it to provide, I guess, more front-end protection uh, and therefore limiting some of the more back-end consequences and limitations that you guys are primarily focused on.
0: Well, I guess I would say that they're not as dissimilar or as unrelated as that introduction suggests in the sense that if you have a ban, that actually incentivizes uh, cybersecurity behaviors that may be effective prevention. And if you were, say, to make it easier to get a a waiver or a license to make the payment if you had done the following 10 things. Right. And you know, if the, if the licensing entity said, if you haven't, you know, if you don't have two factor authentication on every account, don't even apply for a license. You know, we're not going to consider it unless you've done certain basic minimum stuff. Then the carrot and the stick are kind of intertwined with one another in important ways. Uh, I think most of the pure carrot stuff is being done. And I think a lot of entities are choosing not to eat their vegetables. I completely agree with Ben. I just
3: wanted to add, there's just, I think Joyce brought it up. There needs to be a distinction and carefully not to, I guess, put a target on the back of smaller organizations because the larger organizations will be able to comply with this and uh, as a result the criminal groups just mainly focus on the ones who don't have insurance or aren't capable of doing it and while it may be pennies compared to the millions they'll get it can still add to their ecosystem fuel of further operations so we, we whatever approach does get adopted needs to balance that small organizations may not be able to comply but that also the lack of compliance means they will be a targeted even more possibly only targeted
2: Well, I think that's actually a really good question, exactly what I wanted to ask you on next. Uh, You know, a, a prohibition, and in some ways, particularly a not absolute prohibition, where you do have certain gaps open for categories of cases where you say, yes, it is worth permitting in this certain types of case uh, payment to take place because of the consequences, sets up a certain degree of guideposts. You can see that it sets incentives for the entities that are pursuing this sorts of activity. You know, If you say you can do payments for hospitals, if I were a ransomware organization, that means I'm going to start targeting hospitals much more aggressively, at least in the United States to some extent, maybe that's good, maybe that's bad. Obviously, maybe it's difficult for the companies encountering it, but if you focus it to a smaller sector of the economy, maybe you can do more to support them, you can do more to encourage preventive behavior to secure them against the initial threat in the first place. And then, of course, channeling towards certain types of entities may facilitate a more whole-of-government response. Um, Certainly, the United States has said, well, look, cyber activities in regards to -to state-to-state activities that trigger consequences that result in the end-of-life or cost-of-life's consequences, comparable to something like an armed strike can even go so far as to tri- be treated as an armed strike under national law, basically implying like, yeah, military responses are on the table for something that severe. So you could shove everything closer to that category, enabling state other state responses. H- how do you all see this fitting in there? What are the complementary measures or policy adjustments the government needs to anticipate to account for the strategic adaptation of ransomware groups in response to a prohibition like this?
0: Yeah, so this is the issue that most concerns me about our idea is that it incentivizes the targeting of the institutions that you're actually going to permit to make the payments, and that risks focusing the market on the most vulnerable uh, high-stakes entities. That said, there's a flip side to that coin, which is that it also causes you to identify those agents, those institutions and focus on their cybersecurity. And if, and if we could say as a society, uh, we are going to take responsibility for and really focus on the cybersecurity of entities that if they got attacked and ransomware, it could pose a threat to human life. And we're going to let other entities fend for themselves. And we're going to say you're not allowed to feed this market and you need to take responsibility for your own cybersecurity. We don't have trouble doing that to the people of Afghanistan, you know, and we're saying we're withdrawing our protection and you guys, you know, you don't want the Taliban to come back, get together and, you know, figure out how to keep 10 million women and girls out of slavery. But it's not our problem. You know, when you say it that way, it sounds pretty heartless, but that's actually the way I feel about a lot of American business. And by not subsidizing in a big way and focusing on the cybersecurity of the entities that are most important, that actually have human life and limb at stake, you're basically subsidizing the cybersecurity of every of, of lots of entities that should be investing in it themselves by saying to them, you can offload your risk later if you need to. So I do worry a lot about incentivizing attacks on the wrong entities, or the, the most high stakes entities. But I also think by doing that, you might actually force yourself to say, these are the entities we're really going to help. And the entities that we're not really going to help, you know, we're not going to relieve the moral hazard if they don't if they make bad choices, and then it's catastrophic for them. By the way, there are entities in the U.S. economy that do this right. And I'm looking at you, the financial sector. We don't really have a big problem with financial sector cybersecurity. Why not? Because the companies proactively went in the financial, and we love hating the banks. Everybody loves hating the banks. They do this really, really well. Well, what's the difference between the banking industry and the pork industry? One of them planned for this and the other didn't. Why should we as a society subsidize the latter choice?
3: I think it's a reemergence of people's desire to make things static and cybersecurity inherently isn't. So uh, all these approaches are going to try to be compliant for today. The the truth is your compliance today won't mean anything tomorrow. And I think a lot of the older systems and industry especially are having a harder time adapting to this never-ending struggle or battle and we just probably got incentivized and like as ben says why are we favoring certain industries over the other if they've risen up and absorbed the costs earlier in the year
2: Well, let me bring you down to one last question because we're almost out of time here. Um, We have seen debate over some legislative measures, certainly the administration has been talking about this on ransomware, nothing approaching that I'm aware of, at least what you guys are pitching, but taking steps in the direction of transparency and some other measures. Can you give us a sense about where the action seems to be around ransomware and the related kind of cryptocurrency questions right now and how far out? this these sorts of proposals might be is this something that's actively in the conversation or is this are there still several kind of antecedent steps uh lower hanging fruit if you will that congress and the administration seem likely to tackle before they get this far uh, Alvarez, I'll, I'll start with you because i know you track these issues uh, fairly closely
3: yeah one big area i've noticed especially uh that's getting a lot of traction is related to cryptocurrency exchanges I know the the Senate the new Senate infrastructure bill uh, targeted some aspects of it and some people aren't happy within the crypto circle, uh, referring to cryptocurrencies, not cryptography, but I think that's the, big, the biggest area we'll see. A lot of the, uh, the laws, the KYC, I know they've been adopted, but they need to be fully implemented and that will help law enforcement begin tracking the scope and scale and also just verifying certain transactions. And from there, we'll see different things. I don't think we'll see further expansion of the executive order to the sanctions list due to the fact that uh, some of these affiliating groups are arising from China, and we haven't seen a real, I guess, international focus of applying sanctions to those types of activities. We've seen that happen to Russia and North Korea, but not so much China, and that might be some geopolitical or some national security um, type of interest or reason, but I don't think we'll be seeing a lot more expansion of sanctions or executive orders for that. Reason.
0: I think that's right. I think we're going to start on the cryptocurrency side. I do think... The administration and the White House in particular is wringing its hands about this problem. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way, by the way, at all. They've been treating it with a great deal of seriousness and focus. And they have in exactly the way that Alvaro is rightly says the experts are split on it. The experts in the government are split on it, too. You know, as you know, it's hard to get anything done in government when opinion is divided. The White House in particular uh has said publicly that they're interested in ideas on this problem. Uh and actually Ann Newberger, the White House Cybersecurities are or, or NSC's uh senior director on cybersecurity. Was in a conversation with Dmitri Alparovich uh, of Silverado uh, Policy Accelerator, said explicitly that they were really interested in just getting ideas on this subject. And so, actually, one of the animating principles behind this this post was, all right, let's flesh out the idea of how big a change it would be to actually change the landscape on this. It was sort of a direct response to. Newberger's comments. Um, uh, Eventually, we are going to have to confront this question, which is, okay, everything breaks down. And you're a company that now has a ransomware demand and your shareholders want you to pay it because it's way cheaper to pay it. It's too late to have invested in cybersecurity, but it's way cheaper to pay it now than to have done that investment. And it's way cheaper to pay it than to uh, rebuild all your IT systems. So do we want the system to encourage you to pay it and to capitulate to those shareholder demands? Or do we want the system to act as a restraint? Uh, And I do think eventually the administration is going to have to confront that question. And I do think the current environment is is in many ways creating a very, uh, maladjusted, uh, maladaptive incentives.
2: All right. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there. Ben Avro, thank you for joining us here today on Lawfare Live. Thank you all so much for joining. We will see you next week for our, our next installment. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to rate and review The Lawfare Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. To gain access to our weekly Lawfare Live online discussions, an ad-free version of our podcast, and other benefits, consider supporting Lawfare on our Patreon account at www.patreon.com lawfare. This podcast was engineered by Ian Enright and Hamza Shittu of Good Rodeo and edited by Jen patcha Howell. Our music was performed by Sophia Yen. As always, thank you for listening.